church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there be no division among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the body does not, not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Hello. All right, let's read verses 32 to 35 out loud together. Here we go. And I want you to be free from anxieties. Read out loud. Let me hear you. The, man, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is the, the Lord's word. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. Grateful for the gathering of your church. Grateful for a beautiful day here in Northern Virginia and grateful to be a church in your word. And so, God, we pray uh, that you'd open our eyes to see what scripture has for us today. But more than that, you'd open our hearts to receive it. God, we pray that we would hear and see your gospel and that it would change us to be the people that you've created us to be. And I pray that in Christ's name, everyone said, amen. All right, so if you've been tracking with us last week, uh, we, uh, we had our counselor up here, Nick Perrine, who is our church's counselor, and he uh, unpacked uh, the beginning of uh, chapter 7 for us. And really, chapter 7, as he unpacked it, uh, has three particular themes, uh, marriage, uh, sex, and divorce. And we are in the section of Paul's letter where he is actually answering questions that this church has uh, asked him. So we don't have a record of all these letters going back and forth. We only have a record uh, of two letters that Paul wrote to this church, but there were more. Uh, Paul uh, suggests that in the book of 2 Corinthians. But more than that, uh, this church was also, uh, they were going back and forth with him about the particulars of being the church at Corinth. And this is how we know Paul is answering a question that they had. And at the top of chapter 7, it says, now concerning, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then he'll repeat that phrase in chapter 8 and in, a, in subsequent chapters uh, as he's responding to things that they have questions about. Today we're going to talk about singleness, uh, but the overarching issue that we're going to talk about is fully giving yourself an undivided devotion to the Lord. Singleness. I don't think I've ever, I know, I've never preached a sermon on the theme of singleness, of being a single person since I've been a pastor. I don't think outside of a marriage conference I've ever heard a sermon about uh, singleness. And so this proves to you uh, the, the, the benefit, the value of just walking through books of the Bible. Uh, I'm preaching about singleness because that's what Paul is going to talk about to the church at Corinth. And if it's uh, of value to them, it's going to be of value to, to us. But think about this idea, undivided devotion to the Lord. He'll say that in verse 35, and I'm taking that as the theme of my sermon. Here's what Paul is getting at. Whether you're single and you live life like that, or perhaps you're married or somewhere in between, the question that he's asking and that I'm asking in concert with him is, are, are we all living in undivided devotion to, to God? And if not, if not, what might be keeping you from doing that? Um, the specific question that the Corinthians were asking Paul is, is simply this, is it better for us to remain single? And he asked that because they had a lot of things going on. Some think there was a famine or some uh, catastrophic event that had happened that Paul is saying, hey, uh, if your wedding is planned for tomorrow, you might want to put that on pause because there's other things that we can take care of. We don't exactly know what the circumstance was, but this idea of singleness, and even if we're remaining single, 
I think is relevant to our culture because of this statistic. For the very first time, this is a recent statistic, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics tells us that more than half of our population is single. Now, it's slightly half, more than half. 50.2% of people, they're counting people 16 years of age and older in our country are single. Now, I could give you a lot of caveats about how people are qualifying their singleness. Some of those are people who are single yet cohabitating. Okay, so they're, they're, they're playing friends with benefits. But for the most part, these are people that are marrying later than they used to, um, living longer and choosing to be single. We also live in a day where, I mean, this is unfortunate. Women are saying, man, I don't need a man, right? Y'all didn't even react to that. Our culture is saying that. Women are saying, hey, I don't need a man. Or if I, if I want a man, I'll go get one. I'll use him, and then I'll go back to doing what I, whatever I want to do. And our women are telling us that they feel uh, better without us men, which is uh, sort of a slight on us. But here's where I'm going with this text. Um, I want to ask the question, how free, how free do you feel to obey and follow God's plan for your life? Do you feel free to love God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, to love your neighbor as yourself, to, to follow the, the great commission to make disciples who love the Lord? Or perhaps do you feel distracted, overwhelmed, overcome by circumstances and unable just to get any kind of traction in your life, such that a, an idea of being fully devoted to anything is, is far from a thought in your mind? Do you have and undivided devotion to God. When it comes to um, this idea of undivided devotion, but, but particularly of being single, Paul wants to know, I'm going I'm to break it down to three things. Firstly, you're free to choose. You're free to choose whether you are uh, going to be married or not. You're free to be free from worldly pursuits that keep you from following God's will. And thirdly, we should all be free from the anxieties of life that oftentimes corrode our minds with distraction and all kinds of demands. So let's look at this idea of being free to choose. Verse 25, I want you to be free from anxieties. Oh, that's verse 32. Verse 25, back up. Now concerning the betrothed, betrothed is the word virgin. So he's talking about those people who were engaged to be married but had not yet consummated, consummated that marriage. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. But I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as, as he is. Paul uses this phrase, this present distress. And some think, as I mentioned earlier, that this refers to some kind of earthquake or maybe a famine. Something that was widespread, that, that, had, that had ravaged the land. And because of the social upheaval of that, Paul is saying, hey, you might want to press pause on anything, any kind of social event, particularly uh, marriage um, at this time. Uh, there's another thought about what this phrase means, this present distress. Some would say, you know, this actually means present necessity. Uh, and that in that, Paul is referring to the urgency to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of Jesus among people around them that don't know him. Paul will use this, uh, this phrase, um, this present distress, later on in this same letter. And in that, he's going to talk about the urgency that he feels to proclaim the gospel, the urgency of getting the gospel to uh, in the ears and hopefully in the hearts of people who, uh, who are considered lost, who could go to hell without Jesus. And because of Paul's emphasis in not just this letter, but other letters, that's, that's really the the, the way that I lean towards what he's trying to say in this phrase when he says, this present distress. I think Paul is saying, in light of the times that we're living in, that he was living in 2,000 years ago, we need to be about sharing the message of hope that we have found in Jesus, that we need to be devoted in that kind of a way. And, and, and if we could just pause for a second, think about that in terms of where we live right now in the, in the D.C. metro region. You know, we've got 5.6 million people that live within this region, and that's an old statistic, so obviously there's, there's probably quite a few more people. We'll find out in the, the next census. 65% of those people in the DMV say that they are Christians. That's a high statistic, isn't it? That doesn't even sound right, but what that is, that's people self-reporting that they, uh, 
their ethic is Christian, all right? That they're saying, you know what, I'm, I don't necessarily go to church. They're not saying they go to church. They're not saying they read their Bible. They're saying, I'm not a Mormon. They're saying, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. I identify mostly with Christians. So that's why the statistic is high. But even if that statistic is, is like kind of, sort of right, here's what this means. It means that at a minimum, 35% of the people out there admittedly are claiming that they don't know Jesus and perhaps don't even want to. And that's, that's a sad statistic. That's two, that's two million people that live separated from faith in Jesus and will likewise uh, spend an eternity separated from God. And so, I mean, think about that just for a second. I mean, does that affect you in any way? Is there anything in you that would, like Paul, have a sense of urgency about the moment that we live in that so many people would be outside of the grace of God. Think about your neighbors, your co-workers, those people in your family, and ask yourself, do you have a sense that we should be undivided in our devotion to God and on his mission for those potential millions of people who will never perhaps enjoy fellowship with God. Paul goes on, verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Skip down to verse 36. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Paul has a simple message here. Here's what he's saying. He's basically answering the, their question. He's like, should we get married? And Paul is saying, he's shrugging his shoulders like, well, I, do whatever you want. If you want to get married, get married. If you want to stay single, then, then stay single. You're free to choose. Now, he's going to qualify that in some of the other verses. But overall, he's saying you're free in the Lord to remain as you think you need to be, either single or married. And some of you are hearing this, and you're looking at the words like, well, duh. Like, what, what's the big deal about that? I, I thought Paul was a, like one of these, those high intellectual, like really deep theologians. And he's, that's all he has for us this morning. And it doesn't seem earth-shattering to us, but if you were in the, in the first century, mid-century, mid this would have been a remarkable statement that he's making. Um, maybe some of you grew up in contexts where the thought of uh, not getting married would be akin to sin. You know, there are communities like that, particularly 30, 40 years ago, where you were told that marriage is everything. And especially if you're female, to, to have the thought that you, uh, you know, your role would be other than uh, being married, taking care of a home, having kids, and tending to that, that kind of lifestyle would have been ludicrous. And so some of you perhaps even grew up learning that your role in life is to wait for Mr. Perfect, Mr. Right, or perhaps you're a guy and was told the same thing. You wait for that person to show up. Wait for them to sweep you off your feet and you'd marry and that you'd live happily ever after. You know, in some cases, us Christians, uh, we've made marriage the ultimate. Would you agree? In the day that Paul was speaking to, marriage was like that. If you were a woman, marriage wasn't just uh, your security, it was your meaning in life. To, to be uh, not married, and to be not married and not having kids means that you were a social outcast. People would look at you and think that something was wrong with you. And some of us actually feel that way today. Those of you that are single up in the church in particular are used to people asking you, just coming up and boldly saying, well, I mean, you're not married? Why aren't you married? What's wrong with you? It's this feeling of a social stigma attached to our single folks because they're not married. And I do want to apologize for that. I apologize for the way that the church culture has um, pointed you out and made you feel different or less than because you've chosen to be single or just perhaps because you are single. We've made marriage 
uh, seemingly more important than the Bible is making it. We've definitely made marriage more important than the status of being single. And that's not biblical. In fact, I don't know if you're getting what Paul is saying here. As, as we're reading on, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is affirming that whether you're married or whether you're single, you're on equal footing as a status, as a person. And you get to choose. Actually, Paul goes a little bit further. And he's going to say here, and of course he's saying this to qualify what he's saying in light of their, their particular situation. He's saying, I don't know about y'all, but I think you probably should remain single. Because if you're married, you have some encumbrances that you've got to overcome that, that I just don't have because I'm not married. That's what Paul's going to say. There's a freedom that you have being single that as a married person, you don't necessarily have. And so here's what Paul surmises. He says, we're free to choose whether we're single or married, and there are many good reasons to remain single, he'll tell us. If you're single, don't look down on your status. Rather, you're supposed to be asking God, how can I maximize my life in the station that I'm currently in so that I am giving my undevoted attention to, to you? But here's where Paul goes next. He says, the choice that you make in regards to being married or single is only as good as you are free to make that choice. The question being, are you really free in your heart to make a choice? And Paul uses this language in verse 37. He says, being under no necessity but having his desire under control. Here's what he's saying. He says, I don't want there to be any external force other than God, nor any internal desire other than a pure devotion to God that drives your decision of singleness or getting married. I want you to be free from the world's pressures, even peer pressure, even family pressure, even mama's pressure, right? Free from a desire in your own heart that's not fully devoted to Jesus. We live in an environment and in a culture of of conflicting pressure. So some of you, on the one hand, uh, might actually sincerely want to get married, but you're a professional, you live in D.C., and the culture here is get, uh, not get married, it's, it's, uh, I have a value on my career, on my own autonomy, and my personal freedom. And because you're in the culture, you sense that you're supposed to be like in stride with that. I'm going to take care of my career and my autonomy and put marriage on hold, or maybe not even get married at all. And this, unfortunately, leads many of us to look down on marriage and see it as an evil thing. There are some that will tell you that the image that I have of marriage in my mind is like a ball and chain. Why would I want to weigh myself down by getting married? And Paul would say, if you're feeling like that, if you're thinking like that, you need to pay attention to what's compelling you. More than that, you need to pay attention to what's controlling you. Because if you're thinking like that and it's not a true feeling from your heart or it's just been pressed on you from the culture, very likely uh, it's the culture that's telling you to do that, not God and his desires for you. If you want to get married because you see the opportunity to pursue oneness, because that is what marriage is for, right? Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. That's the magic of marriage. God takes two people and he... Um, fulfills his image of the image of God in those two created people. And then he sets them on this path of being fully devoted to him in their lives as they multiply and fill the earth and subdue everything and really are vice regents over, over the planet. And that mandate from God has not ended. So yes, there are some parts of marriage where we are to procreate and have fun and satisfy our needs in the context of marriage, but really God put you together to pursue oneness. But not just that, he put you together to give yourself away in service to one another, that you would serve each other as together you pursue the love of God and the love of others. And if you can say you want to get married because of that, then you're free. You should probably get married if you're here here and you're single today. But on the other hand, if you want to get married because you can't, you don't think you can live without it, without, without having somebody else by your side, If the idea of being alone is a thought that you cannot bear, then I would tell you you are discontent, and your discontentedness is coming from you being controlled by this desire that you need someone. And here's the deal. If you only get married so that you can have 
so that you don't have to be alone anymore. If you only get married because you need someone to fill your desires, if you only get married because you need someone to help you be all that you're meant to be, you're going to crush your spouse because no one can bear the burden of, being, of, of helping you be all you can be. That's just a burden that most people cannot bear. You'll be potentially making someone else your God. There's also another side to this as well. If you choose to remain single because you want to be more free to spend time with God, you want more opportunity to engage with your neighbors, you want to be on mission with Jesus with all of your time, and as Paul would say in, in I think, verse 37, uh, you're not, you don't have the passion that would suggest that, all right, so uh, your flesh is burning, so go ahead and get married, then you should stay single. You're free to do that if you so choose to do that. But on the other hand, if you say you want to remain single just because you just want to be free, I want to chase my career, I want to advance my own self, uh, you hate the idea of being obligated to anyone, you want to keep your options open, you're waiting for the right person to come along, the truth is you actually might not be free. And like the person who is discontented, you are perhaps enslaved to the idea of your own self-expression of being free to do whatever you want at any particular time, and, I, and this is going to shock most of you, that is contrary to the gospel. Think about Jesus. Think about Paul, but think about Jesus more. Jesus was a single person all his life. He gave himself away to everyone. He surrendered his life to God the Father's will, willingly giving himself up on a cross for you and me. And the Bible doesn't tell us this, but we assume this. Jesus, Jesus wasn't single to save himself. He wasn't single to be about his own desires. He was single to give himself fully away to the Lord and his will for him. And so there's some of you here that really want to be married, but the opportunity hasn't provided itself. It hasn't come. So I want to be sensitive to that. But I also want to provide a little bit of, little bit of challenge because a lot of time we're just waiting for something better. Y'all know what I mean by that? Like, all these people are going by. It's like, yeah, I like your ears. I like your feet. But I don't like anything in between. Like, I like what you do. I don't like where you live. Like, like I like all of you, but I don't like your family. I like the money you make, but not anything else. And so I'm just going to wait till something better comes, or comes my way, right? And a lot of times, we're just waiting for Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Um, I ran across an article this week, and it was a really good article. Uh, Lori Gottlieb is the author, and she is uh, a, a feminist. She was single for a majority of her life, and uh, she kept holding out for Mr. Right. And I'm, I'm using that term because that's the term that, that Lori Gottlieb uses. Uh, she was 40 years old and realized, you know what, I'm not getting any younger. I want to have kids. More than that, I actually sort of kind of in my heart want to get married. Um, but in lieu of that, she got artificially inseminated with a friend of hers in her 40s, had a child and realized this feeling is not going away. I don't, not just, I don't just not want a child. I actually want to have a, a, a family, a, a husband too. And so she got married. And so this is an older article, but in 2008, she wrote an article for The Atlantic summarizing her insights from life of having a kid at 40 and then getting married late in life. And she called it Marry Her. The case for settling for Mr. Good Enough. And here's what Lori Gottlieb says. She says, when we're holding out for deep romantic love, we have the fantasy that this level of passionate intensity will make us happier. But marrying Mr. Good Enough might be an equally valuable option, especially if you're looking for a stable, reliable companion. What I didn't realize in my 30s is that while settling seems like an enormous act of resignation when you're single, once you take the plunge and do it, you're probably... Uh, you'll probably be relatively content. That's because what makes for a good marriage isn't necessarily what makes for a good romantic relationship. Marriage isn't a passion, t passion fest. It's more like a partnership formed to run a very small, mundane, and often boring nonprofit business. Hilarious. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean this in a good way. It's not that I've become jaded to the point that I don't believe in romantic connection. It's just that as your priorities change from romance to family, 
the so-called deal breakers change. Some guys aren't worldly, but they make great dads. Or you walk into a room and start talking to this person who's five foot four and has an unfortunate nose, but he quote unquote gets you. I bet there are plenty of these men in the older, overweight, and bald category, which they all eventually become anyway. That hurts. Part of the problem is we grew up idolizing marriage, thinking that it meant finding the man of your dreams, who, by the way, doesn't exist precisely because you dreamed him up. And so we walk away from relationships that might make us happy in the context of a family. Those of us who are looking for a soulmate are almost like teenagers who believe they're invulnerable to dying in a drunk driving accident. We lose sight of our, immortal of our mortality. We forget that we, too, will age and become alluring. All right, so if you want the link to that article, just, uh, just ask me. And uh, I, I, I mean, my takeaway, I mean, this is so true, right? I mean, her, her thinking about her own self and her walk into having a kid and eventually getting married is, is true, really, of most of us. And those of you who are single in the room, I think it, particularly you need to hear this. Uh, what makes your marriage great is not the external things about a person. It's not how they look, how much money they make or that they're better than other people, or any of those qualities, uh, perhaps the best thing that you can do in marriage is to marry someone that you would call a friend, and that that friendship has the potential to grow over time. And, and that friendship, in that friendship, you're devoted to the purposes of God together as you pursue him and his call on your lives. That's what makes a great marriage. Hopefully you enjoy passionate relationship with your spouse in that marriage, but eventually, and this is what Laura is focusing on, that infatuation turns to realization. And I got realization capitalized on, in my notes because it's like real, right? That's what she was talking about. You realize the humanity of who you marry and the facade, uh, the facade starts to fade. And over time, life allows you to see that you too are just two broken people. Um, I wrote this down. I'm going to regret it when I say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. So here's the thing. Many of you, if you knew what your spouse was really like, you wouldn't have gotten married, right? There's some, I mean, that's, that's the truth for many of us. But, but herein is the grace of God. By God's providence, he brought you together, and his grace has kept you together. And hopefully you've learned to love each other and die to yourselves in the process. A great friend of Larissa and I uh, passed away this as Friday, her name was Peggy Watts, and Jack and Peggy were great friends of ours. They were mentors. They were fellow elders at Manor Church with us. We were riding in the back of their car to dinner, uh, an elders' dinner, uh, one Christmas time, and we admired them. We admired their friendship. We admired their marriage, and I think it was either Larissa or I that asked them, so what's the secret to your marriage? You guys are smiling, and you're lovey-dovey, and you seem just to, to be great friends. And I don't remember if it was Jack or Peggy that responded, but here's what they said. Well, we just wake up in the morning and we, and we, we see who's going to die the most that day. That was, the, that was the, the, the nature of their marriage. They woke up knowing that to be able to serve each other in marriage, that it required them to die to themselves so that they could serve not only themselves, but serve the Lord in their marriage. And I think that's what really makes a true marriage. So if you're single, I mean, that's what marriage is all about. It's not finding someone that's better. It's finding someone that's willing to die along with you. So Paul says, you're free to choose. Here's what he says. Secondly, you're free from worldly pursuits. Look at verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if, betrothed, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you of that. Paul uses this word worldly troubles and he's not suggesting things outside of Christianity as in the all the bad stuff in the world is pressing in on you. He's talking about things in everyday life. In other words, when you get married, there are going to be things in like small things, inconsequential things, insignificant things that'll just press in on you in life and they're going to feel like they're getting exacerbated. And so you'll have worldly troubles and I would spare you of that. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown 
very short. Paul and uh, the apostles of his day were of the opinion that time was growing short and that Jesus would return at any moment. And they wanted to be found not just themselves ready, but they wanted to have uh, as many people knowing, loving, serving Jesus in tow as possible so that they wouldn't leave anybody behind. And of course, as I started out, that should be our hope and, uh, and our efforts again as well today. And so verse 30, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning. I'm going to go back up. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. Appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who had wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want to point out two things here. First, notice that Paul doesn't say, if you have a wife, if you have a husband, stop having, stop having that person, stop having that relationship. He, he says, live as though you didn't. And there's a nuance there, but it's an important nuance, and it's an important point to get. He, he's not suggesting abandonment as in you, you're married and life gets hard. Turn your back on your spouse. He's raising a tension point. He says we need to relativize the world that we live in, that we need to realize that marriage and career and work and stuff, regardless how big that and important that stuff is, it's not the ultimate. That, that laughter nor sorrow has the last word, that your sorrow will someday be la- become laughter, that your mourning will someday become rejoicing, that all these things are temporary realities. And if you live as though they are the ultimate reality, you're going to be let down by life and all that stuff that you're trying to satisfy your, your life with. You'll never satisfy, uh, those things will never satisfy you like you hope and think that they will. And, and here's the sober thing. Marriage isn't the ultimate either, but neither is, is singleness. And so the material possessions that we have, they all have a shelf life. Your iPhone that you just bought today is going to be out of date and style and be slow and scar- scratches on it and stuff in a couple months from now. And then Apple's going to, of course, advertise another one, right? And you're going to want it. And so our material possessions, they have a shelf life. Your career isn't all there is. And unfortunately, an inordinate amount of our attention and or pressure leads us not just to possess these things, but for them to possess us. And we become a slave to the very thing that God gives us. These good things that God has given us, we become, to, uh, we become enslaved to them so that those things are now possessing us. And so here's the important thing. It's not to remember um, those things shouldn't have mastery over our lives. And if they do, the end result is that you're not really free. Paul says in verse 31, here's the second thing, the present form of this world is passing away. And he's reminding the Corinthians of this impending eternity, that the world that we live in has moments, and we don't know the the time or the day. Matthew uh, Matthew 24 says, we don't know the the time or the day when, when Jesus is coming, but we're supposed to be ready. Paul is reminding them of that. This world has an impending eternal reality. The world as we know it is going to end. He uses the word form, which is a, in the Greek culture, was used to describe actors that would put a mask over their face uh, in the facade of whatever, the, the, whatever they were acting out. And he's, he's giving us this thought that the present mask of the world is fading away. In other words, God is showing the things of the world for what they really are. And that way, our, our jobs, our marriage relationships, the possessions that we have may be good gifts, but compared to Jesus, they're not ultimate. Only he is. One, one uh, commentator says this, the problem is everything we have parades itself around as ultimate, promising to give us everything our hearts desire, but it's all a charade. And now that Christ has come, the jig is up. I love that phrase. Everything is slowly but surely being amassed for what it really is, that it's not the ultimate, not everything. And so all day long, here's what our culture has done to us. We're being told that if we just get that thing that we don't have, if we just get that relationship that we long for, if we just get that job that we think we deserve, then we'll be satisfied, we'll be fulfilled, our heart will be happy, we'll feel secure, we'll finally have a sense of significance, and guess what? We get it, we use it, we realize, man, 
that wasn't what I thought it was going to be, and we want something else. And then we do it all over again. And then the thing that we want, it never becomes enough. And what Paul wants us to know is that we were made for so much more. We were made for eternity and the eternal one. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, there's this God-sized hole in your heart. And though you might chase people and stuff and things, if it's not the Lord himself that's feeling it, you're going to chase people and stuff and things. And the insatiable desire that you have for that stuff is never going to be fulfilled. It's just going to keep urging you to, 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 to take and eat and take and eat. But what the Bible tells us is that God has given us his son who gave his life for us to, to be in relationship with him. And if Jesus is not the one that you're seeking over everything else, then you will be in this, this, this eternal, um, uh, this eternal seeking for something that will never satisfy you. You might even get married if you're single. But very shortly after you get married, the honeymoon is going to be over. And you'll realize that that new shiny thing that you have, the moment you get it and use it, it's now dull and you'll want something else. And that's what our culture keeps telling us. Have y'all figured this out yet? The culture keeps telling us that if you spend money on something and buy the product and get it, it's going to be all that you need. And you get it and you use it. And after you use it, you realize, man, that was a letdown. And you still want something else. And here's the thing. Here's what Paul is telling us. That can be true of marriage. And so those of you who are single, this is how this works. You get married, and marriage is a person with problems marrying another person with problems. And just because you get married doesn't mean that those problems always go away. So when you think of it like this, man... If you're single, and this is your thought, I just can't wait to get married. Pause. Right? Because here's what happens in marriage. I, I love the equation that, that, that Paul Tripp gives us. He says, when you get married, regardless of how goody you are, it's sinner married to a sinner. And you know what the equation is? Sin. Right? Sin, I mean, y'all do math, right? This is like elementary level math. Sin plus sin equals sin, and that's what happens in marriage. Marriage comes with an equation. All right, so Paul says you're free to choose, you're free from worldly pursuits, and you're free from anxiety. This is where he closes. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, but how to, uh, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this to you, uh, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided attention to the Lord. And so Paul focuses at the, lap, the, the latter part of, uh, of his letter on this idea of anxieties. And we're used to anxieties being those things that make us nervous or that bring fear to us and that make us sweat, things that we fret over. Um, here's how he's translating anxieties here. Anxieties are additional concerns in your life. So here's what he's saying. If you're single, wanting to get married, here's what you're inviting yourself to. You're inviting yourself to all the additional concerns of life. Things that, if you don't get married, you might not be exposed to. When you're not married, these additional concerns have the potential to be less. Much less, Paul is saying. Because naturally, a married person is going to be attentive to their spouse and to their families. And so Paul qualifies what he's saying by saying, I'm not trying to lay a restraint on you. That can be translated. I'm not trying to put a noose around your neck. I'm not trying to hang you on this. But I do want you to know that there are freedoms to being single that you don't have when you're married. And, and, and here's his bottom line. It's verse 35. It's whether you choose to be single or whether you choose to be married, the, the goal is having undivided attention. This is how he finishes, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. 
Yet in, many, in, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think I, too, have the spirit of God. Here's how he wraps this up. I think Paul is telling us every one of us has been designed by God to live in relationship with God himself as our primary and our most important relationship in our life. That we're supposed to make God ultimate. That we would have undivided devotion towards our God. And Paul says this because we live in a context where we're constantly being distracted. Think about your life even today. All of our attentions are being drawn into so many places. We live in a culture where we have unlimited opportunity and seemingly unlimited freedoms. But here's what Paul is trying to sort of balance here in our text. He's saying, you know what? You think you're free to do all these things, but you're actually not that free. Here's why. Because we're full of anxiety over having to choose which thing we're going to say no to. Do you get that? There's so many things that pressure us in this life and in this world. And if you're like me, I feel pressure to say yes to everything. But our pressure is exactly, you know, there's so many things coming my way. The anxiety is I have to say no to something. What am I going to say no to? And so whether you're single or married, a parent, widowed, divorced, or anything in between, there's all these anxieties that, that plague us. So if you're single, you're told to have a lot of friends, to keep an online media presence, to stay up to date on Netflix and Hulu series, to keep yourself physically fit, physically fit, try to say that eight times, nutritionally balanced, politically engaged, socially conscious, relationally connected to everyone, while you keep all your options open. That's, that's the life of a single person. No wonder it's tiring being single. But here's the thing, if you're a mom in the room, you're expected to keep your home in a fixer-upper style like Joanna Gaines, while also simplifying your life by organizing everything with joy like Marie Kondo. You gotta keep up your own social media presence with your friends so your friends are liking and, and, and friending you, but also not unliking and friending you when you don't like their stuff. You got kids in sports and dance playing both full-time Uber and Uber driver and ATM. At the same time, if you live in D.C., you're probably working a full-time job or you're a full-time mom with a home business. Any of you moms feeling that? And if you're a dad, you're being told to work 50 or 60 hours to climb the organizational ladder, to bring home the bacon so your kids can have more games, more technology, keep your kids involved in sports, Kids get, uh, give your kids tutors so they get grades here in D.C. Have y'all noticed that yet? Get your kids a tutor. They're already smart, but give them a tutor so they can max out the SAT or the ACT so they can go to an Ivy League school. And oh, by the way, make sure as a parent, dad, that you're making a lot of money and putting some of that money away so that you, oh, by the way, can um, have a college fund for your kids so that they won't dislike you because you made them have college debt. Y'all don't, y'all aren't there yet. It's coming. And at the same time, dad, you gotta be, you gotta be at every performance for your kids. You gotta date and romance your wife. You gotta disciple all your kids. Serve on the board of a nonprofit. Have a hobby. Stay fit. Eat and sleep. Have a really close friend. Be a reader because readers are leaders, right? And of course, be an ongoing learner. Any men feeling that? Feeling that pressure? And then you come to the transit and me and Nick stand up on the stage and we tell you, all right, all right, church people, here's a task. You got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You got to make disciples because that's the mission of the church. You got to go across the street to your neighbor and talk to your neighbor and earn the right to, to be in their lives and present the gospel to them. And oh, by the way, when you come to church, there's things we need you to do. There's kiss ministry and hospitality and making coffee and the soundboard and all this stuff that we need you to do. And you're going, stop it, enough. We don't have time for all that. Don't you know that we don't have time for all that? And I'm going... I, yeah, I do. Because I'm one of you, and I have those pressures on me as well. And it's no wonder us church folk have a problem with undivided devotion. So let me uh, apply this. Um, Christianity and the church life that we live might seem complex to you, but I think it deserves a rhythm. And if you get this rhythm, then I think it makes 
uh, church and the Christian life all the, all the more helpful. And I'm going to phrase it like this. Gathering, going, and growing. That's not original to me. There's a lot of churches that use that. Gathering, going, and growing in between. And I'd like to suggest that to you. If you do these few things, it's going to make your undivided devotion to the Lord a little bit more profitable. Firstly, gather. That means just come to church. Here's what the writer of the Hebrews says. He says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves as some are in the habit of doing, but all the more present yourselves together corporately as you see the days approaching. Almost like what Paul is saying here. The time is getting short. Stop playing. I think one of the best things that we can do to show forth an undivided devotion to our Lord is just to gather. It's just to come to church. Here's the thing. Your soul needs to be encouraged by the people of God and worship around you. But more than that, you need to hear God's word. You need to hear it exhorted in the struggles, whatever they might be in your life. You need to hear about the one Jesus who overcame. And you need to hear that you're not alone in the world. Here's a statistic. The average attendance for most churchgoers is 1.5 times a month. I would tell you as a pastor, I'm, I'm happy. I'm smiling every time you come to church. But that statistic is abysmal. That's not good. And I'm not trying to shame you. I'm just bringing up the point that church doesn't seem to get a lot of our priority a lot. Here's a study. Um, it shows that most people who come to church more often, uh, like as once or more times a week, once a week, live longer, suffer less depression, are less likely to commit suicide, are less likely to get a divorce, they're more generous, they volunteer more in community, they commit fewer crimes, uh, less likely to commit domestic violence. And so what am I saying? I'm saying being in church is good for your soul. What does undivided devotion look like? I think it involves coming to church and doing that regularly. It's good for your soul, it's good for your family, it's good for your community, it's good for your city. You should make time for it. Now look around real quick. All your friends that aren't here that skipped out on church today, make sure when the sermon comes out and the update, you send it to them so they'll help me say that. Right? And if I could add one more thing, come on time. Undivided devotion. So we gather, but we, we also go. And this is, uh, this, we call this scattering in our church. And this is the part where we, we're called to be on mission. You know, we're called to be on mission, making disciples. We go to the places where we live and work and play. And we serve as a witness to all that God is doing in our lives. Part of that for us is our community group structure where once a week we meet with, uh, in, in someone's home and we, we partake in fellowship with good food and good drink. We open the Bible, diving in to, to share God's word and encouraging each other. And then we invite our neighbors into that, not in a weird way. We don't close our blinds and close our door and sing kumbaya. We open our door and open our blinds and we invite our neighbors. We bring the backyard barbecue into the front yard in hopes that we might attract those to the God that we love. And we do that in non-weird ways. Here's another study. It shows that people who are in community with other people who know them and are in their lives are actually healthier people. It's an incredible statistic. And the depth of community rises with the depth of your commitment to love others and not just yourself. So for those of you who would say, you know what, I'm alone and I feel isolated, I would say you just need a little dose of community. And the last thing is grow. Here's the misnomer. The misnomer is that you come and you sit in a seat and you listen to a sermon and you grow from that. You can learn a lot from listening to a, a pastor, open up a passage, a passage of scripture and perhaps teach you things that uh, that you didn't get out of your own study, but this is the way you grow. You grow by using the things that you've learned. And here's what we want to do for you this fall. We want to, I mean, we want to constantly be thinking about how can I help the people at Transit use the things that we're learning. This fall, we got a couple of initiatives coming. I'm going to tell you about a couple. The one, first is a, a, an initiative to mentor. Uh, of course, we used to be at Hayfield for six years, and we are still involved in that school. Um, there's a mentoring um, program that they have of mentoring military kids and um, kids that haven't had the best lot in life. And next month, we're going to have a representative come and talk to us about what that might look like. Once or twice a month, meeting with a kid for an hour and sharing uh, what you have learned in life that might set them on a different trajectory. So a mentoring uh, 
uh, a mentoring way to grow, using what you've learned to help someone else. Uh, we still have not yet uh, begun to uh, reach out to this community uh, of, of Bryn Mawr and the Essel Road area. So one of the ways that we want to grow is, is just strategically praying and thinking through how we would engage our new neighbors here along Edsel Road. And so that's something we want to grow in. And then there's, uh, there's one particular way that I'm excited about. We want to grow some of you in leadership. There's some, I, I love the fact that many of you are military and the, 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 the military services have shown leadership in you, but there are, even in this, this room right now, some of you that feel called to leadership in the church that we haven't tapped into, and I want to give you an opportunity to step into that. So we're going to help grow some of you in that. So I'll close by saying this. We're calling you to this transit church, and I think these are just a few of what could be many examples of undivided devotion, not just to come to church, but to be the church, to be involved in serving and giving and loving and all the things that we do to be on mission with each other, but also with the Lord. And if you're one that might say, Jeff, but even that's too much. I'm just really, really busy. I would say I agree with you. I know all of you are busy, but here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to do an audit. Everybody's life in here is filled with all kind of complex anxiety. That's what Paul's talking about in this letter. But here's what he's encouraging us to do. Let's look at our lives. Let's look at our schedules. Let's ask how many of the things that you actually do are actually life-giving? How many of those things could you like set aside, carve out, not even do, and not lose an ounce of sleep? How many of the things that you do are stirring your heart towards love and good works? How many of the things that you do are even spurring you on to love and obey God? And if you're, I mean, if it's not doing that, then why are you doing it? There's a lot of things that we do, folks, that, that rob us. There's a lot of things that we do that keep us distracted. And I don't say that to discourage you. I say it to join with Paul in his emphasis, you're free, so live as free people. And in all this, whether you're single or whether you're married, we should look to Jesus as our example of the one who gave uh, really an undivided devotion to his father. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. Thank you for Paul's um, challenge about this thing, even in our tradition, that, uh, that one way of life, one status of life is much better than the other. And so uh, we heed that today, and I pray that it will bring correction to those that need to hear it. We're thankful for Jesus, that he was willing to live in an undivided devotion to the Lord. Because, and because of that, uh, we're forever changed and full of hope. And we pray that he would help us to live undivided as well. In Christ's name, amen.